Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm Chris Ryan, your host. Uh, this week's guest is Troy Mitchell, who was a bank robber. Now he's a yoga teacher. Go figure. A really interesting guy, as you can imagine. His uh, experience of life has been wide-ranging and deep, and uh, he's gracious and generous and kind enough to share his experience with us this week. So I'm really appreciative of that, and uh, I think we had a, a very interesting conversation that uh, that you'll enjoy. But before I get to that, uh, Cassie and I are just back from shooting a porn movie in San Francisco. That's right. Add it to my resume. I have now been in a porn movie. Um That'll fit fit in really well with all my other qualifications. Uh, the story is that a friend of mine um, is making a film. He's he's made films before, um, and this time he wanted to do something really special, um, sort of bridging the gap between a so-called mainstream cinema and erotic cinema. Which has been done before, you know. Uh, there was a film, Emmanuel, I remember when I was young, that, that sort of had pretensions to be mainstream cinema, but had sex in it. Um, Steven Soderbergh, great director, has recently done something like that, The Girlfriend Experience um, with uh, Sasha Gray. So, you know, people keep trying to um, to bridge this uh, divide between eroticism and mainstream legitimate cinema, whatever you want to call it, with varying degrees of success or mostly failure, I'm afraid, which is funny, you know, because we're all living lives that are all over the place. You know, we're all living lives that have their mainstream elements and their erotic elements. They're, they're you know, light and dark. They're yin and yang. It's all part of the human experience but for some reason in depicting the human experience we're extremely comfortable with talking about the darkness of violence and you know murder but not the juiciness of sexuality um, that's all got to be compartmentalized over in one area I um, a couple of years ago uh, found myself in the office of one of the founders of HBO in New York. Um, strange story because I didn't really know who he was. Uh, I was at dinner at my aunt's house and a friend of hers was there and we were talking about, you know, the book Sex at Dawn and how some there was some TV interest or whatever. And she said, oh, you should talk to my friend. He's in TV. He, he might be able to give you some advice. And she just, you know, put me in touch with him by email or whatever. And I was going to be in New York and I got an email saying, yeah, you know, so-and-so would like to see you come to his office. And so I thought this was some guy who, you know, whatever, it was like some friend of the family who had done some producing back in the day, whatever. I didn't know he was one of the founders of HBO, right? So I find myself in this office. It's huge. It's got like the whole floor of this building. You can see New Jersey is like massive view. And, um, yeah, so he walks in. I was sitting there waiting. He walks in. He was a little late. He looks at me. He says, well, I know who's going to play you in the movie. Philip Seymour Hoffman. I go, oh, yeah, okay, great. Um, anyway, we walk into his office and, and talk for a while. Really nice guy. Um, but his contention was there's no way you can make a TV show like the one that I was pitching because 
um, what I was pitching was a show that was sort of based on the book. And so it was going to have some science and some, you know, humor and some, some eroticism and, you know, different things. And he said, no, he said, television, you can either do, um, something that's sweaty bodies slapping against each other or a professor, you know, explaining the, the shape of the penis and the vagina of gorillas. You can't have anything in between. You can't have intelligent, sexy programming. I disagreed uh, respectfully, and we you know, argued about it back and forth a bit. And he finally he said, name one feature film in the last 15 years that's been about sex. And I said, American Beauty. And he said, no, that's not about sex. I said, come on. The, the guy, the main Kevin Spacey's thinking, of, you know, fantasizing about his daughter's teenage friends. His wife is fucking the real estate guy. The next door neighbor's son is fucking the daughter. And the, the next door neighbor's father is a closeted gay guy who, I mean, the whole thing's about sex. Come on. No, no, no. Anyway. He, needless to say, didn't go for the project. Um, but anyway, my friend is trying to make this movie uh, that's, uh, uh, I think, going to be really interesting because India Summer, who plays the main character, is in a relationship and the fire, spark has gone out of the relationship. So she's a documentary filmmaker and she decides to interview people who have written or have some sort of cultural presence around the question of sexuality and relationships and new forms and new ideas. So she interviews Dossie Easton and uh, Reed Mahalko and Carol Queen and uh, several other people who have uh, some sort of prominence in, in this world. So it's it's got a documentary aspect to it. It's got real people playing themselves Um and meanwhile, it's also got uh, narrative and drama and character development and all these things we've come to expect uh, from mainstream media so or mainstream films. So I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, Nina Hartley was down there. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun with her. And uh, it was just very interesting. Hanging out on the set of, a, of an erotic film is very interesting. Um, the The comfort that people have with nakedness is uh, amazing to me and and wonderful to see i'm not particularly comfortable with my own nakedness and never have been uh, but it's it's inspiring and liberating to see people who really don't give a damn um like they're not pretending they don't give a damn they don't give a damn Interesting. I watched, uh, Cassie and I watched the last episode of Louie last night, speaking of comfort or discomfort with one's nakedness. Um, uh, that was very interesting. If you haven't seen it, Louie's show is uh, well worth checking out. And this epi- this uh, season actually, I think, had a lot to do with body image and, and people's comfort or discomfort with their own body. Um, okay. Another thing that's going on is this week uh, I'll be in Los Angeles shooting a pilot episode uh, for HBO of Dan Savage show. I I don't know what it's going to be called. I don't know if they're going to pick it up. I don't even know if I'm allowed to be talking about it. Nobody's told me not to, so I assume it's cool. Um, But uh, 
My understanding is it's a panel show, and I don't know who the other panelists are going to be, but uh, I'll be there as well as, um, I presume, a couple other people. And we're going to be talking about uh, sexuality and some of the stuff that's happening in the news these days. So I really hope that gets picked up. Uh, I think Dan Savage is a wonderful, as you know, you've heard me talk about him and with him. Uh, I think he's a historic figure who's done as much uh, to liberate people in this country, um, as anyone probably in the last, uh, 20 or 30 years since the civil rights movement, really. I mean, there've been a lot of people, I don't mean to, you know, to leave anyone out, but I, I really think that Dan has done a, a heroic job of, um, of, uh, excising, exorcising, I guess we can say the shame from uh, a lot of, uh, sexuality in this country. And, and the more media presence he gets, the the happier I am, and I think the better off we'll all be. All right, our uh, this episode is brought to us, brought to you by uh, My Package, that underwear company I've been telling you about. They uh, they bring the best and most comfortable underwear experience for men. Stay cool and dry this summer with their patented comfort technology, combined with their special moisture absorbent and breathable material. Uh, my package was generous enough to send me a few pairs to try out. And uh, honestly, I'm not a fan of underwear. You've probably heard me say that before. When I was 11, my Kung Fu teacher told me never wear underwear and always sleep in the nude. And man, I've been following him ever since then. I'm, you know, got to go commando when you can, but sometimes you just can't, you know, gentlemen, you know what I'm talking about. So for those days when you can't go commando or you just don't want to, my package check them out mypackage.mypackage.com that's p a k a g e um also if you are one of the first 10 people to order and use our code sex at checkout they'll throw in an extra pair for free so check them out they're great mypackage.com also sponsored by ting the cell phone service that charges you just for what you use imagine that uh, they're especially cool if you ever travel outside of the country. You ever like go to Europe for a month or something and you got to pay 50, 60 bucks just to keep your phone number? Well, with Ting, it's six bucks. All right. Six bucks a month to keep the number. So if you're away, that's it. Um, with Ting, you don't have to keep paying a monthly bill if you're on some other phone. Maybe you've got a landline, whatever it is. 98% of all cell phone users would save on their monthly bills using Ting. The average bill is 21 bucks a month. That's about what I've been averaging, as a matter of fact. Um, so really, check them out. They're fantastic. Go to sexadon.ting.com. You can enter in your normal monthly minutes, current bill, and whatever, and they'll show you how much you would save if you switch to them. Uh, pretty cool, right? No contract. They'll even pay you 25% to help you get out of your contract if you're stuck in one. They'll pay a quarter of it to get you out. Um, and you also get $25 uh, for signing up. They've got the iPhone 5, Galaxy, whatever. Um, you can buy your phone from them. If not, you can bring your own phone if it's on the Sprint network, I believe. Anyway, check them out. Sexadon.ting.com. And lastly, a new sponsor, Ride Scout. Now, I haven't used this, but it seems very interesting, and some friends of mine have told me it, it's pretty cool. Um, it's a mobile app. It's free. 
It aggregates all ground transportation options in your city. So if you need to go from you know one point A to point B, you put that in this app and it goes through and gives you the cost, directions, arrival times, etc. So you can compare or book your rides on demand like metro, bus, taxi, bike share, car share service, pedicab, whatever, walking, biking, driving, the whole thing. It, you just say, I need to go from here to there. And it gives you, it lays out your options, how much each one costs, how long it'll take, what time you'd arrive, yada, yada, yada. So you can decide, oh, maybe I should walk. No, I don't have enough time to walk. I got to get a taxi. Oh, wait a minute. I can do a you know an Uber. That's going to be quicker, whatever. Great. Really, sounds like a really cool thing because there are all these different you know, now there are so many apps and so many options. Now we need apps to to sort of bring all the apps together into one place so you don't get overloaded with this stuff. So anyway, that's what Ride Scout is. Uh, check it out. They're giving the podcast a buck for everyone who downloads their app uh, using the link I'm about to give you. So it's pretty cool. Um, you know, even if you don't use it or you decide you don't like it or whatever, it's a way to throw a buck our way and to show that, uh, you know, we've got some listeners who, who are active. So if you've got an iPhone, you want to go to bit.ly slash tangent Mac. I'll do that again. bit.ly slash tangent Mac. T-A-N-G-E-N-T. M-A-C. And if you're on a droid, same thing, bit.ly slash tangent PC. That's it. So bit.ly slash tangent Mac or tangent PC. Okay. And they've got, uh, they're set up in, in 69 cities in the U.S. and a few cities in Canada. So if you're in Australia or Europe, I guess, I guess they don't have it there yet. All right, that covers it. Without further ado, I will turn you over to this week's episode with Troy Mitchell, former bank robber, current yoga teacher, very nice guy. He's uh, he's trod a long path to get where he is today, and uh, it's really always touches me when someone. You know, it's great when you you can go on a, a show like this and and talk about, oh yeah, you know, my success, my blah blah blah. You're how great you are. Um, but I'm always really touched by people who are willing to share their failures um, because that's so much harder to do. And and there's something, you know, there's something very deep about uh, about the willingness to to share uh, difficult experiences that you've had in the hope that it'll help other people avoid it. And I think that's that's what motivated Troy. So I really appreciate it. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy this episode very much. Thanks for listening. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation All right, I'm in uh, Troy Mitchell's kitchen. Uh, I actually initially, way back at the beginning of this podcast, it, one of the ideas for names that we had was kitchen table confessions because I just imagined my myself you know showing up at people's kitchen tables and um, 
<laughs> but that's not, I think that sounded a little too uh, serious. Hmm. Confessions, you know? Who am I to take confessions? Reagan esque. Yeah. Chat yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, a little a little too formal, serious. Anyway, Troy, uh I met Troy because a friend of mine um was on Airbnb and uh, rented a room for a few days and we hung out and uh so it's a very sort of um uh serendipitous connection we have. We don't know each other well at all. We've just met a couple of times, but I've already managed to um uh step in shit as the as the jews say um because the friend who was staying here was then going to go stay in our place and there was a package coming and then she decided not to stay at our place she decided to come back here and it turned into this big mess and in the end i uh had the package sent here to troy's place and it didn't occur to me how uncomfortable that would be and i'll explain why uh because troy doesn't know me this suddenly through like a quick, you know, people he doesn't quite know arranging something. Suddenly this package is here and he doesn't know what's in it. And when I came to pick it up the other day and I, I said, oh, we can open it. You can see what it was. And you said, oh, I don't need to. I trust you. That was the first time it occurred to me that a guy who's been in prison for a long stretch of time and has a, a serious record would be extremely sensitive to some package sitting next to his door and he doesn't know what's in it. Cause you said, Oh, I felt, I felt the weight. Even if it was drugs, I'd only go away for 10 years or something. <laughs> I know you were joking on some level, but afterwards I thought, shit, man, that's true. I, you know, pure obliviousness on my part it never occurred to me that, a situation like that for you would be a completely different experience than what I was assuming. Yeah, I've had a level of paranoia about people taking advantage of me, using me in some way because of my background, you know, putting uh, me in a position where, you know, they want to use me for something that I don't know the true intentions behind it. In case something goes wrong, I could be the fall guy. Right. So that has been a concern of mine. Right. And a very legitimate concern. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, I'm ashamed to say something that didn't even occur to me. You know, it's like uh, privilege. It's, you know, you're white. You don't think about what it's like to actually be black, right, or True. any other color. True. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that was an interesting experience for me to, to ponder that. Anyway, let's, let's uh, get into your story. So, um, roughly what I know about you is... My friend mentioned that you taught yoga in prison. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. A guy who goes to prison and teaches yoga to the inmates, that's a pretty cool thing. And then I mentioned it to you the other day, and you, you said, uh, well, I think I should tell you I, I, was, I was a prisoner when I was teaching yoga in prison, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's how we got into this. So, right. so what, what's the story? How, how did you end up in prison and... Well, the way that I ended up in prison is I grew up in Portland, pretty normal upbringing, upper middle class family, yeah. uh, had all the advantages, should never have been that kid that goes to prison, certainly. Um, had the, you know, growing up the white privilege and all of that. And then as I got a little bit older, I got into drugs pretty heavily. And I also, along the way, became addicted to adrenaline sports, you know, um. ski racing and bicycle racing. And I loved that you know, that intense adrenaline rush that you get from doing things that are really risky. Yeah. And so cocaine, when I found that was really, you know, the easiest way to feel that way. And it was a good, a good match for me. 
Uh, I'm, I've suffered from alcoholism and drug addiction pretty much my whole huh. life, but it didn't really start to seriously negatively impact my life until I was in my 20s. So then I got to the point from cocaine abuse that uh, I became unemployable. And I happened to meet this one woman that had been a teller for First Interstate Bank. And we were out doing cocaine together one night. And uh, she told me about the security procedures in, at First Interstate Bank and how they handle bank robberies. And I took that information and sat on it for a couple months thinking how crazy even considering doing something like that was. But in the back of my head, there was this seed that had been planted that if things ever got really bad, I could always rob a bank. So why do you think, did she tell you that with the plan, like, hey, we could do this? Well, actually, yeah, she was already robbing banks herself. Ah. And she told me that she needed somebody to drive for her. And she told me all these reasons why it would be safe. And and uh, as I've told this story before, um, there was a lot of cocaine on the table at the time. So I stayed there until the cocaine was gone. Right. And then split a few hours later. And uh, that seed, like I said, had already been planted, though. So that knowledge was there, how to do it. And uh, I got to the point where I was really desperate. I was broke, deeply in debt, and knew that I, I believed that the only thing that would solve my problems was money. And so I robbed my first bank. Mm-hmm. And I subsequently robbed 13 banks after that and ended up getting busted after about six months. Went to federal prison for six and a half years. All the while uh, believing that the choices that I made were made because I had to make those choices. I had to do those things because society was, was unfair and, uh, you know, I never got a break and it was your fault, that victim stance that so right. many guys in prison are stuck in. Right. And uh, so I continued to do what I'd always done during those six and a half years was deal with my stressors and the things that were difficult for me by drinking and using in prison. In prison. So you were able to get coke and alcohol in prison. Well, there is anything that you want in prison, especially the higher levels of a prison that you go. Um, the first prison that I went to was a maximum security federal penitentiary called Lompoc down in oh, California. Famous, yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty famous prison. Um, and this was back when it was still really, really dangerous. There you can get anything you want anytime. It's as easy to get loaded there as it is on the street. Because the gangs are just bringing stuff in? Mostly the guards bring it in. Right. Yeah, most of the drugs come in through staff members. Hmm. The only drugs that come in through inmates is contact in the visiting room where somebody might come in and have some balloons of heroin or coke or whatever in their mouth, and they'll kiss their guest, and then they'll right. you know exchange the the little balloons. So it's tiny amounts, really. Yeah. The bulk comes in through the guards. Um, in fact, I knew some Colombian, uh, actually Colombian drug lords when I was at Lompoc, and they were bringing in pounds of pot at a time. A couple pounds a week were coming in. So is there a tacit deal with the guards? Because obviously nobody's really checking. A pound of weed is a pretty big package. Yeah, um, there, there's definitely um, an agreement between the people that are really um, connected that bring the drugs in. Um, these people are connected on the outside to criminal organizations, yeah. and they are continuing to earn while they're inside. And the guards, of course, they don't make, you know, they make a, they make an above minimum wage, you know, or they earn above minimum wage, but not a whole lot. And you know, a lot of them turn to this as an as an alternate way to make more money, and they make probably quite a bit more money. Of course, not yeah. as much as it's going to be worthwhile once they get busted. Yeah. Because they eventually usually do. Every couple, 
every couple of years, somebody would get popped with a package and then they'd bring in the uh, U.S. attorneys from the outside, the, the federal U.S. attorney, and they'd say, okay, this is the deal. You either give us this guard that's bringing this in for you or we're going to stack another 20 years on your sentence or, or whatever it might be. And so the guys turn over on the guards and rat them out, and the guards get busted, and it's a big deal. And then pretty soon somebody else takes that guard's place and starts right. doing it too. So do the guards do time? They don't do time in the same prison where they were a guard, right? No. That wouldn't no, work out. No, and where they do time, I don't know. I'm sure yeah. that they have prisons that are specifically for correctional officers or police officers. Because they'd have a lot of trouble with the general oh, yeah. population. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you always hear about the the sort of hierarchy of of hassle in prison, you know. And I imagine being a cop or a prison guard, you must be pretty close to the the bottom of that hierarchy. Uh, in some ways, yeah. I mean, the the man that has the keys is in, has power over you as an inmate. Yeah. Um, but within that hierarchy, yeah, there's all kinds of uh, um, what would you say? There's you know, there's definitely a hierarchy to it. Yeah. You know, there's a lieutenant that's up above the, the, the mainline guard, and then yeah. above him there's the... Well, I, no, I mean like a, a former copper guard who gets uh, who becomes an inmate. Well, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah that would be, be like... Terrible. Would, no, it would be horrible. Yeah. I mean, I know that those guys do sometimes go into general population. I don't think in federal joints, yeah. but in state joints they do. Um, but they're usually held at lower-level security facilities. Right. Most of the people that are held in lower level security facilities are only interested in doing their time and getting out of there right. because they know that if they screw up, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to go to a higher level security, number one, for sure. And number two, um, they'll lose good time and or maybe catch a new case. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just not worthwhile. Yeah. So how long were you at Lompoc? Altogether? Let's see. I was at Lompoc altogether for, I think, seven years. I did... Two and a half years there the first time, and then got transferred to a medium facility, Sheridan, in Oregon. And then I, um, you know, eventually got out a short time after that. And then when I got out and started drinking and using again, um, I went back to Lompoc again. And when I got sent back to Lompoc for the second time with a fresh 17 years, that was the moment when I was underneath Lompoc sitting in the intake. And I, you know, had the the great good fortune to be completely destroyed. Mm. You know, all of my ego and all of my uh, arrogance and bravado, uh, which had seemingly served me through the years, I thought. I thought that's the way I needed to be. Um, I had realized finally that that was useless and it had brought me back to that same place. Uh, I sat there and, and just didn't know what I was going to do. The only thought that really seemed like an option at that point was to um, commit suicide at some point shortly after I got up in the, into the mainline population. So I was pretty suicidal, but uh, I spent five more years at Lompoc, to answer your question. I spent five years there, and um, the first within the first probably two weeks... Um, First two weeks after I hit the main line, which I hit main line the same day I got there because I had been there before. They looked at my record. They saw that, you know, this guy knows how to do time, so they let me up in the main line. And they put me in a cell with a guy that had 24 years of recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this guy, uh, and they didn't put me there because they said, okay, well, this guy's a, a junkie alcoholic. We need to put him with somebody that's in recovery. They just put me there because that was a white bunk that was open. Mm. And uh, I just watched what this guy did, and, and uh, I paid attention to 
one of the things that you do when you get to prison is you um, you pay attention to what's going on around you, who's who's running which click, um, mm. you know where where uh, where you can go, where you can't go. You have to be really really careful. So you just kind of pay attention. And I did that. And unlike the first time, when what I was looking for was I was looking for um, who is uh, who is dangerous, who is um, who has drugs, who has booze, who has the things that I want. This time, I was looking. I was looking at Dave first of all, because Dave was my first celly, and Dave hung out with other guys that seemed to have a, a dignity about them. Um, mm. That the other that I didn't see in very many other people. That's not to say that people that aren't that are not in recovery in prison don't have dignity because there's a lot of men that have realized that they're wrong in prison and are doing all that they can to change. Um, but in the guys that I saw who I could identify with because they spoke the same language that I did, they understood what I had been through because they had been through it themselves. I saw those guys in in a, in a new light for me. I saw those guys as men that had found a solution to their problems. And they had the best jobs in the prison. They were always the lead men on, on crews. Because in, especially in federal prison, you can work full time. I worked eight hours a day the whole time when I was down. Mm. And these guys, like I said, had the solution that I had been searching for my whole life. And I started doing what they did and I went to meetings and, and then uh, I had already had a background in yoga as I mentioned to you. Uh, I had taken yoga at Portland State University when I had, um, after I'd gotten out that first time. It seemed like an easy solution to me, get a little financial aid, be able to be on the government dole for a minute, get some classes, see some mm -hmm. pretty girls, go to school. All right. So I did all those things, and one of the things that I took was yoga, and I really liked the way that it made my body feel. So then when I was going back for the second stretch, and I escaped from the uh, Hillsborough County Jail, Washington County Jail in Hillsborough, I screwed my back up pretty good going through a second floor window, uh, sliced my um, tricep nearly off of my left arm, oh, cut geez. open my brachial artery. and So was, this is after you got busted the second time? Yeah, I got busted the second You're time. You're being held and you... you and I escaped while I was... What the hell jail. was the thinking behind that? Well, again, um, one of the, for me, I was so crazy at that point because... How old were you? I was 33, 34. Oh, so it wasn't just young man craziness no, 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 anymore. No. This, yeah. this, now this is um, you know drug-induced um, lifetime of shame and guilt over these things that I thought were so horrible that I had done. Right. And some of the things that I did were, was horrible. I mean, robbing all those banks, I used to think, oh, that's a victimless crime. Those women, I come up to them and I you know, give them my note because I was just a dope fiend bank robber. You know, so many bank robbers are just, they just walk in, they give them a note, and the money is given to them because the, they want you out of the bank. Right. They don't want you harming another customer because then, of course, they're liable. Right. So I had learned from that woman that I mentioned who had been a first interstate teller that that's what they want. They want their tellers to do whatever the bank robber says to get him out of the bank as soon as possible so nobody's hurt. Aren't they giving you marked money, though? In some cases, Yeah. They, they usually have a bait pack. Right. In the bait pack, the money is the serial numbers are written down. Sometimes they're marked. Um, there's die packs that they give they you. explode when you right, go out the explode, door. But what yeah. you do is you write in your note. You say, you know, bundled money only, 20, 50s, 100s, no ones, no fives, no die packs. Right. They give you exactly that. I never got a die pack, and I robbed 14 banks. Were you armed? No, I was never armed. 
not not during the bank robberies. And then when I got out the second time, I had again, you know, there, during that first bit, I had just gotten worse and worse. I had uh, I had even had made plans with a couple of these Colombian dudes that I had met how we were gonna because uh, I speak German, so they wanted to go to Germany and sell coke in Germany, and I was gonna t- me and this guy were gonna get a sailboat loaded up with a bunch of coke from Colombia. Sail across the Atlantic, go to Germany, and sell cocaine for a couple yeah, of years. No you know? one will ever see that coming. Yeah, right? nobody would ever expect <laughs> some guys to do that. Yeah. So I was. That's where I was. I was insane. I was still thinking in this yeah. very flawed, uh, money will solve my problems way. And uh, then when I got busted the second time, you know, I had no drug treatment, and I was uh, in the jail and looking for a way out from it's over it's a phone, yeah, that, oh, okay, it's a yeah. phone. so i was uh i was in jail and i knew that at that point i thought i had 30 years coming because i had measure 11 charges in oregon which carry for rob, rob armed robbery it's 90 months they charged me with two counts of armed robbery because there were two people that i spoke to in the restaurant that i tried to rob and armed Armed. I had I had two you, pistols. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. And the reason that I had those pistols is because I had come to believe that if you walk into a restaurant with a pistol or a bank or whatever, they will do exactly what you say, because that's what we see on TV, of course, and that's the stories that I heard in prison. Oh yeah, you walk in and you just show them a gun and they'll just do whatever you want. Right. It seemed to make sense to me. So I didn't have the pistol to shoot anybody or anything like that. However, I did have two guns because I figured if the cops showed up. I would be able to get down and pop some caps, you know, bang, 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 and they would duck down, and I was so close to my old neighborhood that I could get into my neighborhood and they wouldn't be able to catch me. So that was my crazy thinking. Were you watching a lot of Tarantino films? Oh, yeah. I love Tarantino movies. It sounds like something out of a Tarantino movie. Hey, I'm going to take a quick break because my batteries are are running. I'm going to jump in real quickly here since we're taking a break anyway. And say, I uh, remind you that uh, one of our sponsors that uh, is has always been there since the beginning, Sure Design T-shirts. Check them out, SureDesignT-shirts.com. Uh, They're fantastic. They've got lots of shirts. Um, you can buy the Civilized to Death or Sex at Dawn or Paleo Modern shirts at my site, ChrisRyanPhD.com. Um, but they've got a whole bunch of designs. I've got you know six or seven. They've got hundreds. Um, including some of their really funky um, new marijuana type designs um, based on the names of marijuana, different strains of marijuana. Beautiful designs, some retro stuff, uh, very cool stuff. Anyway, check them out. You can also, um, if you want to throw some support to the podcast, there's a donate button at uh, the Tangentially Speaking tab on our podcast. And you can also go through our affiliate link to Amazon. If you're buying anything there, we'll get a couple percent of whatever you spend. Doesn't cost you anything more, but it's another way of supporting the podcast. Uh, that's it. I don't want to talk too much about ads. So let's get right back to Troy Mitchell. So, um, so Tarantino. We're yeah, <laughs> so Tarantino movies. I've always loved those kinds of movies. Yeah. High so, adrenaline, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot adrenaline. of action and... Yeah. yeah. So, can we get back to? Am I interrupting you? No. You're. I'm intrigued because this is. You know, I'm also upper middle class white kid. You know, and I'm imagining how easily I wasn't as much of an adrenaline junkie. 
Um, but my best buddy was mm-hmm. um, until I was 15, and then my family moved to a, a different state. Right. And this buddy, I mean, we used to do crazy shit. He, he was half American Indian, half Italian. His yes. father, I look back on his father, and I'm sure his father was some sort of you know mafia guy. He was yeah. the Italian. The mother was this super sexy American Indian, right. 20 years younger than him. Huh. He had one glass eye. And he flew jets. Now, how does a one-eyed guy get a pilot's license to fly jets? I don't know. He had a flight school in western Pennsylvania, six or seven of these airplanes. Mm. This kid, when he was 14 years old, took one of the airplanes up by himself, right? Like, he sort of had a sense of more or less how to fly. And he, like, went out one night and took one of the airplanes and crashed it on landing and you know we used to take his mother's car out and drive around when we were 13 and then he got into hydroplaning so Uh when it rained and there was some water on his stretch of road he'd like gun it and go down and then turn the wheels ah, and screaming and he was into all that kind of stuff and i would sort of go along for the ride because he was really charismatic and it was fun and i felt cool you know then i moved away and uh, his little brother, who hung out with us sometimes, I heard a couple years later, robbed a bank mm-hmm. and was doing time for armed robbery. He, right. he had a gun in the thing. And so I sometimes think about it like, you know, how easy it is. You just, you're hanging out with this kid. He becomes your friend. And even if you don't have that adrenaline crazed, you know, the hunger, your buddy does. And I would have been... I would have been driving the car. I would have been, you know, come on, they're my friends, you know. Right. And you form this sort of brothership of risk. And the risk is what bonds you together, the crazy shit that you've done together, you know. And it's so close to what we hear about, you know, guys in war, right? They don't give a shit about what's going on in geopolitics in Afghanistan. What they give a shit about is that they're with their brothers. They're taking care of each other. They're right. going through all this crazy stuff together. So it, it it's just so, it, it's a hair's, it's just one second can change the trajectory of your life. Seconds you know? and inches. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, did you have a difficult family situation? Do you look back and say, oh, you know, was there some abuse or something in the family that you felt sort of drew you away and into these distractions? Or No, my family life was fairly normal um i think you know everybody has issues with their fathers and sure you know and or their mothers my mother um was a functional alcoholic pretty much she would work every day and, and come home and fix dinner and then sit there and drink beers till she fell asleep at night right and i didn't really realize that she was drinking alcoholically because she seemed to be managing her life pretty well and right. but she was de- she was detached um, she loved me, I'm certain of that, and she always stuck by me through all the years, but she was kind of detached. My father um, was a extremely angry man. Uh, he was verbally incredibly abusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I ever felt like I had his approval. Uh, I remember rarely him ever telling me that he was proud of me, even though I had many, many successes, ski racing and bike racing, which was something that he wanted me to do. He wanted me to to do these things. Um, I don't know if he was living vicariously through me or what, but he provided me the means to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And it's one of the things that I'm most grateful to my father for because he taught me, he took me up to the mountains, gave me an opportunity to go skiing every single weekend. And we were not as nearly as rich as most of the families up there who had cabins and government camp and everything. We literally drove back and forth four times every weekend to Mount Hood Meadows. Wow. And he enabled me to ski with the faster kids because he taught uh, ski school part-time there. Uh-huh. He was a ski instructor. Right. So he'd go to the coaches and say, hey, t- take Troy with the, with the, the faster group. And they always did. So I was always playing catch up, which made me a much better skier, much quicker than most right. kids my age. Mm-hmm. So I'm grateful to him for that because I can ski anything, anywhere, anytime. Um, and skiing's been a, the love of my life, really. Mm. But he was, like, I'd say, like I said, he was verbally abusive, sometimes violent, uh, sometimes physically abusive. But it's certainly not his fault that I turned out the way I turned out. Um, sure, maybe he could have done something different that would have made me channel that adrenaline urge in a different direction you know something more useful to society than robbing banks and spending 23 years in prison but uh uh, that's just not the way it worked out so i i made choices based on self at you know the, the age of 26 or 27 that were wholly selfish and just trying to to get what i needed to get me right yeah and uh so i you know and also the thing too about robin banks that was attractive to me was that i didn't have to do the things that i knew other people did to get loaded i would be able to not only get loaded the way i wanted to because i'd have plenty of money but uh initially what i was planning on doing was i was going to party one more time pay off all my debts and go to rehab that was my plan for my first bank robbery's money didn't quite work out that way <laughs> did you tell that to the judge no nah, actually you know i think i might have i don't know shit <laughs> that's a story i was so i was so deluded back then i probably did write something like that to say yeah. something but yeah so uh so yeah so did you have siblings yeah i had a, i have a sister yeah and she's she's great she lives down in eugene she's a wonderful wonderful gal and your you said your mother stuck with you through this thing, so yeah. your family came and visited and and not so much the second time because of uh. the distances involved. Uh, I saw my mom two or three times in the seventeen years. Uh, I saw my dad once uh, actually that 's not true. I saw my dad once until I moved up to the Oregon State prison by which time my mom was already dead, mm-hmm. and my dad came in and visited me th- three or four times, and then he also um left this plane through his own choice he killed himself yeah yeah that must have been rough when when you heard because you're in you couldn't go to funerals or anything you're no good time no uh yeah it was no it wasn't rough my dad was 72 years old uh he'd been a miserable son of a bitch most of his life you know and again i say that i loved my father but he was a very unhappy man and He was abusive to me and my sister and my mom in a lot of ways. Uh, but, you know, I, I too, I know that my dad was doing the best that he had with, with, with what he had. You know, he didn't, yeah. he didn't know any better. Um, I think everybody does. I think everybody does the best that they can in any given moment. They're just doing the best. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, when, he, when I got the call, came down to the lieutenant's office, I thought that it was going to be, uh, I thought that I... I don't know actually i don't know what i thought I'm, i was getting confused with my mom when i went to hear from the chaplain that my mom had died when i was in federal prison and come on in um hi 
So I thought when I, when I got the call from the uh, chaplain to come to the chaplain's office when I was in federal prison and they told me that it was my mom, I thought that it was my dad. I said, no, 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 you mean my dad is dead. And they said, no, Troy, we're sorry, but it's your mother. And that was a shock because all the women in my mom's family live forever, it seems uh-huh. like, all well past their 90s. Right. So, um, so anyway, so that, now that was hard. Having my mom die at 62 was very difficult for me. Yeah. But again, I had already started. I'd been studying yoga for a long period of time, and not just the physical yoga. I'd been studying um, tantric yoga, and and you know people get that confused. Tantric yoga, they think of the sex thing. Right. It's a tiny part of tantra. Yeah. So I'd been studying the philosophy behind yoga for a number of years at that point, and started to understand that or believe I should say I started to believe that this is not it that we're in this state now and we'll drop these bodies at some point and go on to another state or another experience of some kind but I don't really believe in death yeah and so when my mom passed that was comforting I still cried a bit and still was kind of you know messed up for a few days but then I realized that you know this is just the way it goes and then when my dad passed away um, my dad had come and visited me several times before we got out. We had buried the hatchet. He had apologized to me. He told me that he loved me, which was a rare thing for him to say to me. And uh, we were okay. You know, my dad and I were cool. And he had always said through the years, he'd said that if he ever got really sick or uh, became debilitated in any way where he'd need to rely on other people, that he would kill himself. And I'm pretty sure what happened, because he had a heart condition, I'm pretty sure what happened is he had a bad stroke and just grabbed a gun and just popped a cap in his head, and that was it. So when he died, it was kind of like, okay, he's gone. And yeah. What's next? Yeah, you know, there's a, a nobility in choosing your own death, I, I think, think so. that is underappreciated in our society where death is seen as this enemy that must be resisted at all costs you know um in this book i'm working on now i'm i'm uh, reading a lot about how doctors die Hmm. and it's very interesting that the things that doctors recommend to their patients they almost never choose for themselves Hmm. yeah you know um and they recommend it to their patients largely because they're under a lot of pressure to make money for the hospital and the pharmaceutical companies and so on. But also because the culture tells us that we need, there's no, there's no sense of like, you know, we think we can win somehow. You know what I mean? I mean, even after they're, after we're dead, we, we have these stainless steel hermetically sealed caskets like yeah, what insane. the fuck insane. are you know what, yeah. what is it that you're stopping what process really do you think you're stopping yeah. you know or what's the utility of this yeah it's yeah. just silly you know yeah. um there's no sense of surrender to the the inevitability of death and the you know the body disintegrating into the earth and you know to me the the most beautiful burial would just be wrap me in a piece of linen and you know or drop me in the ocean and let the fish eat me yeah, you know yeah, it's, i agree there's or a like great sky burial with the Tibet, sky burial so, yeah. i was just going to say there's yeah. this beautiful uh, poem by robinson jeffers who lived in carmel back huh. when it was still wild you know ranch land and right. stuff in the 20s and 30s um he writes about uh how he was out one day walking on the bluffs 
and he lay down to rest and uh, fell asleep. And when he opened his eyes, he saw a vulture circling him, getting closer and closer, right? Cool. And he, he didn't move, and he just lay there thinking, like, this thing thinks I'm dead, right? And I could be, yeah. right? And someday I will be. Huh. And he contemplates all that. And I remember there's a beautiful line where he says, what I, I wish I were dead, right? He's saying to the vulture, right, yeah. I'm sorry, I, this isn't my moment, but I wish it were because... What a great, what a life after death. What an ensky-ment. Yeah, an ensky-ment. I Yeah, love that. nice, nice word. What an ensky-ment. Yeah. yeah, and the Tibetan uh, sky burial, same thing. I mean, yeah, that's, they're yeah. inviting the vultures. I love it. Chopping yeah. them up yeah, and I all that. I remember first reading about that in prison because I read voraciously when I was in prison. Is it tough to get good stuff to read in no. prison? No, well, it's, it's harder. It's, it's easier to get good drugs than it is good books. Really? Yeah. Yeah, there are there are definitely ways that you can do it though. There's a lot of outside organizations that send books into prisoners for free. Oh, okay, um, good. A lot of times you can't get specifically what you want, but they'll send you something that's like it. Do you think but, I could get sex at dawn sent into prison, or is oh, the sure. sex going to cause a problem? You, no, you could send them in yourself. Oh, I could as the author. As I could donation. just send a, a sure. couple copies. Sure, absolutely. Oh, let, I mean, let's every, talk about every, that every after we're done. Different, but yeah, I'm yeah. sure you could. You know, the, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and it doesn't really fit into the flow of conversation, but uh, so I don't forget, is would it be possible for me to go into a prison and interview people for a podcast? Probably, probably. Uh, you'd probably have to go into a lower level security prison. Um, there's many of those. There's camps you know, throughout Oregon. So I couldn't go to Lombok or, Lombok or someplace like Maybe. that? Maybe. I mean, you talk to the right person, you get the right you know, staff member to... Right. Yeah. I mean, we had... Um, there, there were guys that were interviewed in, in federal prison, too, even in the max joints. They were usually high-profile people, you know, right. in, in some journalist or whoever would want to go in. Right. Yeah, yeah, it can be done for sure. You just got to... You know, there's a lot of paperwork and a lot of... Uh, bureaucratic stuff that you have to go through but yeah you can right. do it yeah yeah interesting because i imagine and now again maybe this is me romanticizing and out of my ignorance but i imagine well you were talking about some people that you met with a sense of dignity and honor and who had found i was listening to a, a, a podcast the other day by uh, my friend duncan trussell and he was talking about ramdas mm. are you familiar yeah, with ramdas and Ramdas was saying um, that in his experience uh, working with prisoners, that he had met a lot of prisoners who had, um, uh, I, I don't remember exactly the words he used, but essentially what he was saying is that they had given up everything, that they had reached a point where it's like, okay, I'm, I got nothing left, yeah, right? Exactly. And that that was an ennobling moment for them. And that was, uh, they found peace and happiness. And that they were actually in a state approaching what the Buddhists would, you know, call nirvana or an enlightened state or something like that. They, he did, but then he said something funny, Ram Dass. He said, now if you took those guys out of prison and put them back where they were, two-thirds of them would go right back to doing what they were doing. Probably so true. it's a conditional, contextual kind of enlightenment. You know what I mean? That, okay, I'm here, I've got no other options, therefore I accept the, the conditions of enlightenment in a way. But if I could distract myself, if I could score some Coke or some weed or whatever, then I would. You know, I'd go back to... 
I mean, did did you feel when you met people in prison like this guy, this is an amazing guy, but if he weren't here, he might not be so amazing? I didn't really think in those terms. You know, yeah. I one of the things that I learned in prison that was useful to me and to what I was trying to do while I was in prison was that um, it didn't matter what somebody had done in the past. It didn't matter where they came from. What mattered was today, this instant. Mm. The reason that I felt that way is because I knew guys who had done what you're talking about. They had, you know, reached this moment in their during their incarceration when they had woke up, so to speak, and then they decided to make a change. And those individuals had practiced a manner of behaving that was different than what had gone before. When they were on the streets and they were an addict or an alcoholic or just a criminal, they had acted in one way, um, physical actions, right? Which, as you know, I'm sure the neural pathways that are created in our brain when we take action or even when we make thoughts, when we repeat those actions or those thoughts, those neural pathways become stronger and stronger. Sort of like in AA, they have a saying where um, we don't think our way into new behavior, we act our way into new thinking. Mm. And guys that I knew that did that, that practiced kindness and honesty, integrity, compassion, that practiced those things when they were in prison, no matter whether you were black, white, or whatever, because prison's very racial oriented, very, very racist. Everybody's split up into groups, and it's very hard to cross those color lines. Mm. But there were guys that did. Right. There were guys that did that through the religious services you know, that they went to or AA. Those guys that practiced those virtues on a regular basis over time, when they get out, they do fine. They do, and some of them even do great things. I mean, I have a friend of mine that, in fact, um, well, I don't want to out him too much, but my first Sally that I mentioned earlier, Dave, He's the personnel director now for a very large Southern California organization. Mm. And he's you know doing extremely well. That's great. And most of my other friends that I got sober with down at Lompoc, they were um, acting on a daily basis in a way that was, that was giving instead of taking. And it changed them fundamentally. And they're all out and they're all doing well. I only know do one do guys like that become uh, victims? Because I'm imagining a very brutal environment. And so then no. you've got some guys who are being peaceful and, hey, I don't want any trouble. They don't become victims? No, and that's, that's an interesting thing, too, about prison. There's, there's, a whole, there's, a, there's the Hollywood version that we see of prison. Right. And most of it is way, way off. In fact, I've never seen anything that shows prison except for maybe a little bit of Orange is the New Black. And I've watched very little TV since I've been out, but I've seen that a little bit. And uh, some of that is fairly accurate, but in general, um, the, the, if you mind your own business, you don't create any debt, you don't get caught up in um, some kind of um, you know, homosexual relationship, um, not that there's anything wrong with that, and guys do it in prison with, uh, with a level of compassion and care for each other that's just as great as anything that you see out in the streets. But if you don't involve yourself in those kinds of situations, be it you know, getting debt, getting into uh, drama with, with um, you know, other groups, you just mind your business, treat other people as you would like them to treat you, 
you can get through prison with no problem. The other important thing, too, and I think this is something that probably helped to keep me as safe as I was, was that from the very beginning, um, I've always been very athletic. So when I was out on the yard, I would be out there running or doing yoga or standing on my head. And a lot of people didn't know what yoga was. They thought it was some kind of martial art or something. So they see me out there in these weird poses, and they think, wow. Stay away from that guy. I don't know what that dude's doing, but it looks kind of dangerous. That's great. Yeah, so. That's that's a great idea. Talk about TV shows, right? They're like, you know, the the yogi in prison. That's a great idea. Yeah. So, yeah, so somehow, um, you know, I was put in a place of neutrality throughout all my years, and, and I know that, Interestingly, um, the guys that I mentioned a bit ago that I, I got sober with down at Lompoc, most of them also, um, they didn't have problems. They didn't get stabbed. They didn't get beat up. They didn't get, as they say, punked out. So it's not this, I've, I've imagined this situation where you go in and you sort of have to, first of all, you have to like go with your race, right? You can't hang out with the black guys or the Latinos Initially, or you pretty much got to do that. Right. Yeah. And then it's not like you get initiated and you got to like beat somebody up to be part of the thing or there are no. some guys raping you because you're no. whatever. No. Of all the years that I did in prison, 23 years, most of t- about 20 in federal prison, I only heard of one rape. And mm. that guy was a guy that had serious, a serious drug problem and used to, uh, um, he, he was a, a prison prostitute. He sold himself for drugs. Right. So who knows what actually happened there. But nevertheless, I've only heard of that one rape. Um, when you come into prison, you know, the guys of your race, they pull you up, they say, Hey, what are you doing? Do you need anything? And you know, you think, Oh, wait, Whoa, I'm going to get yeah. some debt here. And these guys are going to want to take it out of me or something. No, it's usually just a bunch of guys. They want to get you some shampoo and some soap so that, you know, you show up as another guy of their race. Who's not, you know, uh, scrabbling to make it. Why, why is the racial thing so important in prison? Fear, fear. Sure, it's it, there's, and also identification. You know, this guy's like me, so this guy's like me. He's from my neighborhood. Even better, we're we're instant friends. You know, and I've seen relationships in prison where guys really didn't like each other very much, but they were from the same neighborhood, so they hung out together. Right. Yeah. It's just the, yeah, which makes me think of what I was saying earlier, the Sebastian Junger thing about the um, soldiers. Right. Oh, it's exactly the same thing. So foxhole buddies. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and now, do you think, looking back, you're talking about friends, uh, Dave, your your Sally, and some other people that you've known over the years. Do you think that the depth and intensity of your friendship with those guys? benefited from the situation you were in like soldiers in a war because of the pressure and the yeah um you know another thing that that i think took place the got the general population knew everybody knows what everybody's doing and the general population knew that these aa guys these aa guys are trying to straighten out their lives they respect that they really? support that uh, and as long as you're not getting in their business or doing something shifty or underhand, they they leave you alone. They tell you, hey, leave those guys alone. Those guys are doing the right thing. Leave them alone. Um, prison is uh, prison is this crucible where where it either you know makes you worse or you choose to get better. And you can get better. Uh, I never. I don't think I ever could have done what I did. All those years. I mean, every day I'd get up. I'd sit for meditation for an hour, hour and a half every single day. 
I'd go out to the yard. I'd do Hatha yoga during lunch. It's a lot of times instead of going to lunch, I'd go out and do Hatha yoga on the yard. And the guards are the cool. They let you they do just, what you're doing. They just want, as long as you're doing what you're doing, not trying to stab them or nothing, they're, just go ahead. Especially if you're respectful and polite to them. Yeah. Yes, sir. No, sir. Thank you. Sir, may I go over here and get this, you know, right. whatever. Yeah, they really appreciate that because there's so many guys that are being assholes to them because they you can you know to assert to there, there's a line that you can't cross and if you cross that line then they'll cuff you up and take you into the back and beat the hell out of you. What's the line? Touching them? Uh, no, the, the, well, there's different. Oh yeah, you can't touch a yeah. guard. Yeah, that's definitely crossing the line. Um, uh, disrespecting them in front of a superior officer or uh, even another officer that's even you know taking a chance right um so yeah i mean one-on-one you can talk to him just like you talk to anybody else but in federal prison especially in the maximum security you don't talk to a guard unless there's another inmate standing right next to you you just don't do that because then you might be telling that guard something about some you know, illegal shit that's going oh, on. Oh, I see. You might be out. riding out, right? And so, if you're smart, whenever you go to talk to an officer, you say, "Hey, c- come with me for a second. I got to talk to this cop over here." And you take your buddy over and you say what you've got to say, and then your buddy's the witness. Right? Hey, what did he talk to him about? Right. So you know, right. you're cool. Wow. But yeah, the vi- the violence and stuff in prison is never random. It's always very specific. You know, you owe you know five thousand dollars in in, her- in heroin debt or. or you know, $3,000 on the poker table that you haven't paid yet. So it's very, very specific. But even those kinds of things, um, if I, I saw a guy who was a hope to die dope fiend, I never thought he'd, he'd get sober. And uh, he, I remember he was in the, in the print plant and he's working next to these giant Heidelberg four color presses that if you screw up and put your arm in the wrong place, it'll su- basically suck you and it'll kill you. And he's, OD next to the machine laying there with a rig hanging out of his arm and the guards find him. They take him to the hole. He gets out 30 days later and he's had enough. You know, Mike had had enough at that point and he came into the rooms of, of AA and I, and I was like, my God, look who's here. He'll never make it. Those are the guys that usually make it, right? But he came in and he got cleaned up and he came. He didn't talk to me, but I remember hearing later that he went and talked to one of the other guys in the program about this huge heroin debt that he had. Because he's in federal prison, he's working in Unicor, he's making six, seven hundred bucks a month working overtime, as much overtime as he can get so he can support his habit. But he'd slowly gotten into deeper and deeper debt with these dudes that were selling the heroin, and they were going to kill him, and he knew it. And his sponsor told him, he said, well, look, he says, you know, you've got two choices. You can either go to the, to the cops and say, look, my, I'm, I'm in danger, and they will put you into protective custody where you will remain for the rest of your sentence, which is a nightmare. Or you can go to these guys and say, look, I want to pay you guys. I will continue to work full time, and I will give you a little bit each month. I will give you most of my check each month. Um, it, you know, otherwise, you're going to kill me and you're going to get nothing. You could talk to people like that. These guys are businessmen when it comes down. At the end of the mm. day, they want their money. And Mike was able to work off his debt. And I saw a bunch of guys do that. But they had to get that, they had to get that first point where they were able to see, i got to stop doing what I'm doing and keep digging a deeper hole. Because if I keep digging a deeper hole, they're going to kill me. Yeah. And they would kill you. Just to make an example out of you. Right. Yeah, they'd have to. You said uh, protective custody would be a nightmare. Why? why would that well, because be? once you're in protective custody, first thing that happens is you're going to go to the hole for probably 
six months before you get transferred. The whole sucks. The whole solitary? No, it's not solitary. There's almost no solitary. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. There's very little solitary confinement in the federal system. Um, the only guys that are in solitary confinement in the, in the federal system are guys that basically want to be or just can't be around anybody else because they're just, they're psychotic and they just keep attacking everybody that they put in their cell. And some guys do that because they prefer to be by themselves and they know that they can make that happen. Um, but yeah, no, most times when you go to the hole, you got a celly, maybe, maybe three of you in a, in a tiny little cell because they're really overcrowded a lot of times, but generally you have at least one celly. Um, and you sit in there for six months and you get out for maybe an hour a day out to the little tiny exercise yard that's maybe 20 feet by 12 feet high by eight feet wide that's your exercise area um foods just what you get on the main line which is it's it'll sustain you but it's pretty rotten food you can't really you usually have major commissary restrictions so you can't buy a lot of stuff that you normally could buy Mm -hmm. Uh, so then you go from that then you get transferred you go to another joint if you've got a serious problem, there's a grapevine in all the federal prisons, really all prisons. Word will get to where you're going that this mother, that this dude owed a bunch of money, kill him. And somebody so, there will try to kill you. So you end up in your restaurant. Who's going who's gonna to try to kill you? Someone who's already in, like maxed out, they can't get more time? Generally, but not always. I mean, if you're like, uh, say you're tipped up with some... Uh, I don't want to use a name of any gang, sure, but if you're sure. tipped up with any of the gangs, especially the, there's about four or five very serious gangs. And if you're tipped up, if you if if you want to be tipped up with one of those gang, gangs, you got to make your bones. What's tipped up mean? Tipped up, I'm sorry. Like you're um, part of the... Be, you be actually get, pa- get a patch. Uh, okay, so you are actually... You're in. Right. Yeah, a made, a made guy, right? right? So um, in order to do that, you've got to make your bones, which might only mean, you know, just beating the hell out of somebody or stabbing somebody. Or it might mean you've got to go kill this guy over here because he owes us money. Right. So you're going to take care of this. And if you don't go do this, then we're going to do you. Right. Right. Yeah. So what when you when you look at the experience from inside and outside, um, what are things that come to mind? What what needs to be changed? Well, I think the most important thing that needs to be changed is that we have to try to find a way to reach those guys who still think that a criminal lifestyle is going to satisfy their needs over time. Right. Because there's a lot of guys, especially once you get into your 40s, they, they, they call it aging out. Once you've done a bunch of time and you're in your four, late 40s, especially up into your 50s, most guys, they've had enough. Yeah. They realize this They're ain't serving dangerous. my needs over yeah. time, right? Right. And they know that if they... Get it if they catch one more beef, they're done. You know, they're gonna life without parole or 30 years or whatever you're gonna yeah. get on your next beef. Um, so somehow we have to find a way to reach these guys and, and help them to understand that this is not serving your needs. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is that we have to provide support for these guys when they get out, right? And you know, they got to have a roof over their head. You, you, you get out of prison, they give you a gate, they give you gate money, it's anywhere from they give you a bus pass and then the money maybe 30 to 50 to 80 bucks if you're lucky and that's it that's enough to get loaded that's about it yeah it's enough to go get loaded so we got to provide support for these guys you got to have housing for them when they get out uh in order to get gainful employment for an ex-felon is extremely difficult even me i mean i show up i look pretty good i got no tattoos i'm clean shaven i'm fairly articulate 
I interview well, and I've been through so many interviews where they will be, oh, I can tell these guys are going to hire me, but at some point they take a little bit closer look at my resume where it says, you know, I spent, uh, I, I worked in the Federal Department of Justice Bureau of Prisons for 17 years, and I worked in the state of Oregon for three years as a yoga instructor, meditation instructor, executive assistant to the chaplain, and they they look at so <laughs> so what it would tell me about what you did there, and yeah. I start to tell them, and yeah. and pretty soon they figure it out, and, and they say, well, you were you staff or were you an inmate? And I right. don't lie about that, sure. so I say, well, yeah, I was an inmate. And at that point, the the shutters go down. They say, well, thank you very much. We'll give you a call, and that's the end of that. Hmm. Well, why so, do you think that is? Well, a lot of it is insurance. A lot of oh, employers can't really? hire an ex-felon because they can't insure them. The insurance companies oh, won't insure them. Yeah, Why? it jacks their insurance rates up because we're a risk. Because you're a high risk. Because we, yeah, and and you know I I get it. I, there there's some legitimacy to that, but at the same time, I mean, there's been studies done like for housing, for instance. That's the other problem. Try to go rent an apartment as yeah. an ex-felon. Very difficult. Most yeah. places won't take you. Um, they did a study. I can't remember who did it. I think it was Stanford did a study where um, they found out that ex-felons um, were just as good of a rent risk as anybody else. I think they'd be a better rent risk. In most cases, they are, especially because, like I, I've told people, I've said, look, if I do anything wrong, all you got to do is call my PO. Right. You know, here's his name. Yeah. What what better reference have you got than that? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure... Okay, let's uh, your case for example, right? The first time you got out, maybe you weren't such a great. No, risk, I wasn't, right? Because yeah. you hadn't had the transformational experience, but, right? And my, you know, obviously my my experience is very limited. But uh, I think I mentioned to you that I had a, a guy on uh, who was in prison for seventeen years, and right, uh, and you and he, to the the thing I see in both of you is a kind of carefulness, right? Like. I don't want to go back there. I don't. Oh, yeah. I don't want that to happen, and that's why I felt so. I feel so uh, bad about that whole package thing. You know, like <laughs> you know, I should have. I should have thought about it's that. Passed. Yeah, but still, it's it's something I want to learn from. You know, right? Um, but uh, yeah, as far as hiring you or him or you know, uh, having a, a sense of faith that things are going to be cool. I mean, there's a like I said, a carefulness uh, that would make me think it would be a much safer investment. But if you can't get insurance, then you're kind of... Well, yeah, that's one problem. Screwed. And then there's the other problem, too, is that people um, that are not, you know, big businesses and things, um, they have this misperception of what an ex-felon is yeah. because of TV. And right. then there's all kinds of different kinds of ex-felons. I'm labeled a violent felon. I've never physically harmed anybody in any of my crimes. Now, I definitely put some people through some emotional turmoil. Right. I mean, all uh, the people that, uh, all those women that, in those banks that I robbed, these guys that were uh, involved in the second robbery that I did, that armed robbery, those guys definitely suffered some terror as a result of my actions. And I feel a great deal of remorse over that. Having said that, though, to treat somebody as a violent or to put that violent felon label on somebody you're limiting them you're not going to give them the opportunity to become a productive member of society right. they still can and many of us do but uh, it makes it much more difficult it's yeah. counterproductive 
Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's so many things in American society, probably all societies. Well, look, but, look at, excuse me for interrupting yeah, you, no, but please. look at sex offenders. Okay? Yeah, well. Sex offenders have the worst reputation. Oh, they they have the highest recidivism rate. And all. That's not true. Statistically, they have the lowest recidivism rate. Yeah. They're less likely to reoffend than any other batch of felons, and yet they have the most horrible onus on them. Yeah. They can't live next to a school. They, there's a group in Florida now where they can't be within, it's like 100 miles of a school. So there, there has literally been a group of yeah. sex offenders that are living out in the swamp. In the swamp. Together. I've seen that. Hundreds yeah. of them. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, yeah. A, it's a oh, so whole hidden yeah, world. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 And the same thing happening all over the country. But the one in Florida I've read about, yeah, yeah. it's it's a, a whole world developing out there yeah. well you know speaking sticking with the the sex offenders in this country if you're a there's a difference between a pedophile and a pederast right mm-hmm. a pedophile is sexually attracted to underage uh kids a pederast has had he, he he's acted on it right right pedophilia should not be illegal that's a thought crime. Right, right. Right. I mean, I might be attracted to, you know, sheep. That doesn't yeah. make me a, a sheep fucker. You know? <laughs> um, and also, it's funny, isn't it interesting? Like, I could, like, I could have a sheep. I could kill it. I could, you know, make sausage out of it. But I can't fuck but it. But you can't fuck it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Strange country. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, you as a as a psychotherapist in most states, you're required by law to report anyone who tells you they're sexually attracted to children. Wow! Even if they're coming that. to you for therapy to help them not ever <laughs> yeah. touch a child, uh, yeah. the fact, the simple fact that they admit to thinking about it is enough to to uh, trigger all sorts of legal right. repercussions. Right. Right. So what have we done? We've set up a situation where. A smart, decent person who has this impulse gets absolutely no help with trying to control it. And yet we're, we claim we're trying to avoid this behavior. Right. And right. all we're doing is making it almost inevitable because this person has absolutely no other option. Same thing with guys who get out of prison. You can't get a job. Yeah. You don't have any support to, to help you with the first six months of rent or whatever. Right, right. You're on your own. Yeah. So what are you going to do? I mean, come on. Well, and now the, the other thing, too, is that there are organizations that, that provide all that stuff for you when you get out of prison, but their their funding is very limited, Yeah. so they can only help a tiny percent of the people that get out. And then you talk, they, you'll hear talk about, oh, well, we have these wonderful programs in prison to help guys get over their drug and alcohol problems, mental health issues, things like that. Yeah, that's true. Those programs are in place, and again, they're only available to a tiny percent of the population. You know, so that's, you know, you've got, that's why we, that's one of the reasons why we have such a high recidivism rate in this country. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a, it's a crazy situation. When you, when you look back in the years that you were in various places, were you, were you ever in solitary confinement? Uh, yeah, I was in solitary confinement after my escape for about four months. What was that like? Uh, it was... It was pretty monotonous. <laughs> Surprise! Uh, it was pretty monotonous. Um, but again, uh, this is kind of interesting. There was a, there were two guards there that took a liking to me for whatever reasons. I, I'm not sure of all the reasons, but one of them was that they agreed that if they had been in a similar situation facing 30 years of prison, they would have found a way to escape too. 
So they understood that why I did what I did and didn't blame me a bit for it. Mm. And then this, then this other uh, guard that was there used to bring me books. And you know she, she would read books, and then she would bring it and give it to me. So I had a bunch of really great trashy novels that got me through those four months. Mm. Um, and so yeah, so uh, you know you just you just do what you can, and you get through that. And um, yeah, when you escaped, did you actually get out of the yard? Or? Yeah, I got out of the facility. Really? Yeah. So you went through a window? Yeah, I went. I went. I had. I knew that if I could get into this little hallway. And break the window, I could get out. And so I figured out if I could go to the uh, um, the law library every night and get them used to me going in there, I could somehow jack the door lock mechanism in such a way that I could get out, get into the hallway, break the window, and go. And then one night, this guy came to me who knew that I was planning on escaping, and he came and he said, "Hey, Mitch, the front door of the unit's unlocked." And sure enough, I went up to the the front door of the unit, and they had not secured the, the door correctly. So I went back, and I had this little kid already with, like, 10 pairs of socks to pull on my feet and some some uh, pepper to spread be in my trail so the dogs wouldn't be able to get me. It was all thought out quite well. You have a lot of time to think in prison or in jail. And um, so I, I grabbed my little kit and went out in the hallway and down the, down the corridor and grabbed a fire extinguisher off the wall and started banging on the window, thinking that it would be safety glass because it's a public building, right? Well, it was security glass. It was five panes of laminated glass. And I banged and banged and banged and banged. And finally, I had a hole just about big enough to stick my head through. And, and uh, the alarms were all going? Oh, yeah. The guys on either side. There's there's two cell blocks on each side. I mean, these guys are going, go, go, dude, go. Oh, yeah, really? yelling and screaming. <laughs> Yay. Guys are jumping up and down. It's very exciting. Uh, you know? And here I am just you know wailing away trying to break this window. And then I hear the doorway at the end of the hallway, probably 75 feet behind me, slam open, and I can hear the boots and the keys jangling. The guards are right behind me. So I took about three steps back and ran and dove through the hole ah. and made it through the window and out of a second story down towards the ground. And I remember th- I didn't know what was down below there, and I literally dove. And I thought to myself, as I'm coming out of the window, you know how things slow down when you get in a situation like that. I look, and it was sand. And I thought, oh, great. And I just kind of tucked my head and landed on my shoulder and rolled right under my feet and just ran. Really? And knocked the wind out of me, of course. So I got across the street, and I ran out of energy because I didn't have any wind. I couldn't get my wind back. And as I'm sitting there on my knees trying to breathe, I notice something spraying next to me, and it's my artery, and it's spraying blood all over the wall. And I'm like, oh, no. And so I just kind of put my hand over it and got my breath back and got up and hobbled a few more blocks and then passed out from blood loss. And they found me. The officer that found me was a EMT3, knew exactly what to do. He stopped the bleeding, took me to the hospital, and um, I woke up a few days later in a, you know, in a bed all shackled down and all bandaged up and screwed up. How much more time did that get you? Actually, that's an interesting part of the story. When I went through that window, the state, um, I'd been indicted by the feds as an armed career criminal because I, I was ex-felon in possession of a firearm. That was my federal charge. In, in, the, in the federal system, the way that the sentencing works for a charge like that is if you have two or more prior crimes of violence, which I did from the bank robberies, you're caught for a third crime of violence, which was the robbery, then they can enhance your sentence with the armed career criminal statute, which starts at 15 years. So even though I only had one prior arrest or two prior arrests at that point, um, they 
gave me the Armed Career Criminal Enhancement. So I had, thir I had 15 years in the feds that they were going to give me for sure. I was going to get at least that much. The state was also going to give me 15 years, and they were not willing to run it concurrent or together with my federal sentence. So I was looking at 30 years. So I escaped, got out, you know, went through surgery, went through all that nonsense, um, got got into solitary, for, which was right across from the hospital, the little hospital unit in the jail. And um, uh, my, my attorney came up to me the next time I saw him after the escape, and he told me, he said, you know, I don't condone what you did. He said, but as a result of what you did and the injuries that you sustained, they're concerned about you filing a lawsuit against them. So they're willing to offer you a deal now, and they're going to run their state time concurrent with your federal time do you want this deal or not? And I said, where do I sign? <laughs> Wait a minute. They were worried about you suing them because you hurt yourself on their window that you had smashed out with a fire extinguisher. Yeah. They're responsible <laughs> for my safety when I'm in their jail. And because they failed oh, to man. secure the front of the unit, they were liable. Really? Yeah. What a strange world, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Well, that worked out well for you. Yeah. You know. What was your plan, by the way, if you had escaped? What what were you going to do for the rest of your life? I was going to rob banks and smoke cocaine and oh, rip okay. and rob and run and be a crazy maniac. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of funny from a yogic perspective. Sure. Because in a way, it's very much in the moment. Like, yeah. like no long-term plans. No, you know, no I'm, plans. I'm being here now, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> there's, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's a wisdom in that sort of insanity or not. Well, you know? I, I knew that um, as a hunted, wanted felon that I couldn't ever enter the mainstream again. And I yeah. didn't really want to, you know? Uh, I had the... the Robbing banks is every bit as addictive as any drug I've ever done. It is a yeah. Very can, can we get into the details of that? Sure. Like so. So you you said you did thirteen. I did fourteen altogether. Fourteen altogether. I was convicted of thirteen. And they caught you on the fourteenth one. Yeah. Were they waiting for you? Did they? No, did you have a no. pattern? What, what happened was um, I had robbed my first two banks in Portland. And then about that time, I got a job offer from this great company that I've been trying to get hired for. So they gave me a job. I went down to Los Angeles to do it. And I was working there for about a month and a half. And I'm smoking crack. And I'm drinking every night. And they fired me. So I'm thinking, well, I know what to do. I know how to get money. So I robbed a bank in Los Angeles. And then uh, I went back to Lake Tahoe, where I used to live and coach ski racing, because I love Tahoe. And so I went from Tahoe, and when I'd run out of money, I'd go to Reno or um, Sacramento or San Francisco, and I'd rob a bank and hang out for a few days and come back. And what I did when I robbed banks is I would locate a good-looking bank. I would make sure that there was no security glass or armed guards at the bank. And there was a lot of them back in those days. When it was just a regular bank, you walked in, it was you and the teller. And I would um, look the, look around the general area and make sure that there was a, a way to get in and get out of the bank where I could go around a couple corners where I could look over my shoulder as I turned each corner to see if anybody was following me. This is 90s? This is 1989. 89, okay. And uh, the height of the bank robbery. Oh, really? In, in America, yeah. Oh. The height of the bank robbery uh, rate or whatever. Um, yeah, I think it was like the highest rate of bank robberies was in 88, 89, 90, right in that time. Hmm. So anyway, so um, I would I would figure out how I was going to get in and how I was going to get out, and then I would go ahead and do it. And I dressed very nice. I usually wore either 
um, you know, a button-down collar, nice slacks, and a briefcase, or a suit, or sometimes sort of a something that looked nice, like I was a respectable middle-class white guy. Not? Did you wear running shoes or business shoes? I wore both. Sometimes yeah. I wore run, running shoes when I was dressed a little bit more casually. Right. But yeah, I, I generally, you know, wore um, very normal-looking clothes, and I would. And you just in, had a note. I had a note. I would hand go to the teller, and I'd very nicely say, "Hi, how you doing?" And I'd hand her the note, and. They'd look at it and they'd look up at me and I'd just say, take it easy, just give me the money. And they would give me the money and I would turn around and leave and that would be it. And then, I, you know, you go out of there and you're just like, like you had, you know, a big shot of cocaine. Yeah. And you're just, you know, buzzing, buzzing like crazy yeah. and you go out and you get in your car and you take off and you're buzzing for three or four days afterwards. And of course, by then you bought a bunch of dope and you're getting loaded and you're throwing money around and having fun. You're Mr. Big Shot and... Life is good, yeah, and it's it's all just an illusion, just a just it's, a distraction. What is is the note handwritten, or did you type them? I always hand wrote it? the notes. You hand wrote, and that it. was one of the things that ended up getting me busted. Um, two things got me busted. The first thing that got me busted was they just came out with a new transmitter that emitted a radio signal that was small enough that they could put it in a bundle of money. So the last bank that I robbed had one of those bundles. And I was in Sacramento, a very flat area, because they can't really use them back then in places like Portland because of the you know the hills and stuff block the signals. All right. But back then, it was brand new technology, and I was one of the first people to supposedly get busted with it. And that's what one of the FBI agents told me. And uh, yeah, I just had a bundle of money. I robbed a bank. I'd driven about three miles up uh, Highway 80, and the cops just followed my signal and pulled me over, and that was the end of it. Um, so yeah, and the handwriting they oh, and the handwriting. Um, I handled the notes, and paper is a great medium to get a fingerprint off. Of. Right. And I didn't know that back then. Right. So they had my fingerprints on every note that I had. They accessed uh, my fingerprints through DoD ba- uh, databases because I was in the military. I was, I'm a military veteran. Oh. And so yeah, so they knew who I was. When were you in the military? Uh, nineteen eight, early nineteen eighties. So that's before you got into the the coke. No, I'd done coke a few times, but I hadn't uh, had I started smoking it yet. No, I hadn't started. I'd never smoked it. Um, I started smoking coke in like nineteen eighty five ish, and then Mm -hmm. I moved to Tahoe, and I was kind of away from it. I still snorted a lot of coke in Tahoe because there was was a lot of coke in Tahoe. Um, And then when I moved back to Portland. Uh, because I had started to be, I was starting to reach that line, that invisible line that we cross at some point, and uh, where drinking and using becomes the most important thing in your life. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I, we moved back to Portland because Tahoe was the problem. You know, again, mm-hmm. it's, I'm pointing the finger outward instead of realizing that I'm the problem. The problem yeah. is within me. So we moved back to Portland, and I had called up all of my buddies in Portland that I used to buy, well, all my acquaintances that I used to buy Coke from. And I said, look, I'm moving back to Portland. Don't sell me any drugs. Uh, I've got a really bad coke problem I don't want to do anymore. So I cut off all my white connections. And uh, when I finally wanted, when I needed to get loaded again, I didn't know where to go except North Portland. So I went into North Portland and bought some crack. And thus started my uh, my crack Right, my crack problem. Is, is smoking crack different from freebasing? No, it's the, it's same, the same thing. thing it's right? the same thing, yeah. Someone told me the other day that no white person has ever been sentenced to prison in L.A. County for crack. I don't believe that. It sounded it's hard to believe to yeah, me. Yeah, I don't believe that. Yeah. 
I mean, his. I think the point he was making is about the the racial, you know, how disparity. Yeah, like a lot more black guys get sentenced, sure, sure. than whites, and even though the the rates of drug use is the same in blacks and whites. Well, the reason that more black guys get sentenced for crack crimes is because um, the ease of busting those guys, because most of their drug dealing is open market. You know, they're on the street corner. Right. Um, white guys have apartments and homes and things like that, and right. that's where they sell their drugs from. So it's easy for the cops to see them. Um, it's also easy for the cops to um, stop and frisk them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And they can't afford good lawyers. No, they can't know, afford good them. lawyers. And, yeah. Talking about that that whole situation with sort of, you know, uh, handicapping the recovery of people, the, you can't be in public housing if you've ever been uh, convicted. Yeah. yeah, and that goes all the way back to the Jim Crow laws. Yeah. I mean, it used to be that um, you could not, if your husband, what was the deal? Um, if your husband was even working, you could not have your husband at your housing back in the housing project days, you know, back in, like in Chicago. Yeah. They would not allow the women to have any men around them. Right. Yeah. And then we complain about single parent households. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not because those black men aren't responsible fathers. They want to right. be fathers just like you and I do. Right. But they are so, um, they are so punished for they, they, we want them to have second class status when the uh, when the industrial base went away from this country all those people that used to work in those areas they had to find something to do with those people and thus begin the era of mass incarceration yeah and that's what that's about yeah yeah it's have you ever Jim been in Crow. a private prison or were they uh, all public no, no yeah. i never was yeah, because that's a strange thing. This yeah. whole idea that you know private corporations are running prisons. And yeah, it's insane. There's a, an occupancy rate that's guaranteed by the state, 98% occupancy or whatever. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's what is going on? It's, it's very strange. Yeah, so there's a profit motive, yeah. motive for putting people in prison. Right. And there's a profit motive for the people that own those corporations to get their legislators to make more and stiffer penalties for yeah. any kind of law. Yeah. What do you think about the the relaxing of of drug laws? I think that uh, all drugs should be legal. Mm. Uh, I think that they should be taxed so that there's money that can be put into treatment. But yeah, to to make drug use a criminal issue when it's if in fact a medical issue yeah. is in, not productive. It, it's in, there's an interesting parallel between what you were saying about your own life, right? How you're going through these phases early on and you're pointing, you're saying, oh, it's, it's not my fault, it's Reno, or right. it's this or it's that. Uh, and then you luckily got to a point where you said, enough of that, I'm the problem, and now I start solving it, Creating right? Solution, yeah. I wonder if our society is ever going to get to that point. Because American society is so much about it's, it's the black people, it's the terrorists, it's the communists, it's the Chinese, it's... And never saying, what's wrong with us? You know, yeah. why Why do so many people in this country freak out and kill other people? Why do so many people want, why Why do we have the highest rates of, uh, of antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications? You know, what's wrong with us? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, we can't talk to them about sex. No, can't give no. them condoms because then they'll go get pregnant. Have sex, like, yeah. What? What are we talking about here? There, there's this great thing. There's an article I read a little while ago about how Dutch parents deal with their kids' sex huh. lives versus American parents. And in Holland, you've got a 15-year-old daughter and she's got a boyfriend. Right. So you invite the boyfriend over for dinner. And if you like him, 
you invite them to spend the night. You know? That's great. Yeah. And that's just the way it's done. Yeah. And you know they're going to have sex, so have sex in our house. Right and, you know, and you've got condoms. I need to use the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Take a pause. All right, we're back. I don't remember. Was that a pee break or yeah. was that? <laughs> All right, hold on. Let me make sure your your mic is hot. Test, test. There check, you go. Check. Okay, good. We're good. Um, okay, so before we uh, before we wrap this up, I I really appreciate you taking the time sure. to to share your story with us. Um, we were talking a little bit about yoga on the mm-hmm. break and, mm-hmm. and how I was talking about my wife's approach to uh, treating psychotic patients and how um, there's an acceptance. Well, we were also talking about American society and the craziness of, of blaming everything on some outward uh, outer demon or enemy and then declaring war on it and so on. And so all these things sort of fit together. I think they're, right. they're all sort of parallel because we were talking about Casilda's approach to psychosis and people hear voices and most mm, psychiatrists would try to drug them to the point where they don't hear the voices, but then they don't hear anything else and either, and you're not really helping a person. Right. And, um, so there's a way in which we can accept these things, whether it's, uh, people's anger at the United States wanting to do damage. Well, let's accept that instead of trying to blow them up and eliminate and declare war. Let's accept the fact that there are some people hear voices. We all hear voices in our heads, right? We all dream. We're all crazy. Um, and, and the question is not how to eliminate the craziness. The question is how to integrate it into your life in a way that it's not destructive, right? So then you were talking a bit about um, how important yoga has been for you in this. You started studying yoga before the Air Force or after the no, Air Force? No, the first time I was ever, actually the very first time I ever went to a yoga class was in federal prison. The uh. first time that I was down, there was some guys on the yard that I heard were doing a yoga class. And one of them I knew pretty well and I asked him about it. And he said, well, why don't you come down? We're having one tomorrow. So I went down and I went into this little room and, and we all did some simple yoga poses and then we laid in corpse pose and, and the whole time I'm very self-conscious about who I'm with, yeah. what I'm doing, this is weird, um, and now I'm laying here on my back and I'm just laying here, what the, what is this, you know? But it felt good when I left the room, I felt, ah, it's kind of nice. So then years later when I'd gotten out and I'd gone back to school, I needed an easy A because I wanted to get my GPA up. So I took a yoga class, and I learned some of the basic postures of Hatha yoga. And as I was doing that, I also felt a little bit of a benefit in my outer life. I felt, when I'd leave class anyway, I felt a little bit more calm than I had when I went into class. So that was nice. Then, you know, I got crazy again, did that robbery, went to jail, escaped. And when I escaped, I screwed myself up pretty bad. When I dove out of that window and landed on my shoulder and my neck, it, it tweaked my back quite a bit. And then I sat in the hole for four or five months and got a little bit heavier. And so I get to prison. I'm overweight. Uh, I'm still crazy. And I think to myself, you know, maybe some of these yoga postures will help me kind of get my body back a little bit. So I started doing some of the poses that I remembered. And then, um, so I have the, the I have the understanding of how physically yoga makes you feel better. But I didn't really understand the deeper side of it, and the deeper side of yoga is um, how to be, how to gain union with the with the divine, right? Union yoga literally means union. So 
uh, I'm at the time I started going to AA meetings and I was working the third step, which is where we turn our will and our lives over to a power greater than ourselves. And I had a typical, you know, wasp upbringing, um, not much religion, but, you know, I went to church and I did the church thing a little bit when I was a kid and, and uh, didn't make much sense to me. And then as I got older uh, and I went to college for the first time and I read stuff by Sartre and um, Heidegger and Camus and, you know, all of these authors, I, I became more confused about what God was. And I had a very, um, I got to the point, I remember one point of screaming, you know, fuck you, God. You got nothing for me. I don't want anything from you at the, in the depths of my addiction. And um, so I'm, I'm on the third step, and I'm supposed to turn my will and my life over the care of something I don't understand. And I had this sponsor. Uh, he called himself Jimmy the Jaywalker, and Jimmy was a character, and Jimmy was the biggest, scariest guy in the room, and that's why I asked him to be my sponsor because I figured I needed that kind of a sponsor to tell me what I needed to do because I knew that I didn't know anymore. So Jimmy had taken me through the first two steps, and we were on the third step. And, and I told Jimmy, I said, man, I, I just don't understand this God thing. I cannot find out a God that works for me. And he said, look, he says, you don't have to define it. You don't have to uh, know that uh, it's Yahweh or Jesus or Buddha. You don't have to do any of those things. All you have to do is be willing to believe that there's something greater than you mm. that can help you. And with that, um, we were walking along the track, and we were talking, and in the middle of the track, uh, uh, Jimmy said, are you ready to do the third step? And we reached out our hands, and, and we held hands right there in the middle of the track on a sunny day at Lompoc with 500 guys in the yard, and we said the third step prayer. And everything changed. You know, It was one of those seminal moments in my life that, for once, I didn't care what anybody else thought about me. I didn't care whether I was being cool. All I cared about was that something was finally going to help me solve my problems. And I went from there, and shortly, within a few days, this old dude came up to me, a 65-year-old guy, old heroin addict, old meth cook, came up to me on the tier and handed me this big stack of CD Yoga Correspondence course lessons. And I didn't know this guy, and I was like, well, what, what, you want to just give me this stuff? He says, look, I've been studying this stuff for years. He says, I'm just going to throw it away. If you want it, you can have it. If not, I'm going to go throw it in that garbage can. So I took it from him, and this was the philosophy behind yoga. And I studied it for the next 12 years. It was a 12-year correspondence course. I, I did it every, you get two lessons a month, eight to ten pages, and you just read them every day. And I came to understand the whole philosophy behind yoga, which helped me to understand that I was connected to everything and that all of this that was around me is a divine manifestation. And there's no good or bad. It's just different things. And our thinking makes it good or bad. Yeah. So um, that was the thing that started to give me the belief that um, I could love and I could be loved unconditionally and that I could become... Uh, of service to others. That's another thing that yoga taught me. Yoga taught me to to get out of myself and offer what I knew to other people. Uh, the first time I ever taught a yoga class, and now I'd been teaching, I'd been practicing for about five years at this point. Um, this one outside yoga, Siddha uh, Yoga correspondent course guy came into the prison and he said, somebody told me that you've been practicing yoga for a while. Would you lead our class today, give a little half-hour uh, Hatha yoga class? And I said, well, I, never, I don't know how to do that. I've never taught yoga before. He said, well, you know more than these guys do, don't you? 
I said, well, yeah. He said, okay, we'll just show him a few poses. Mm-hmm. So I did, and we got done, and he told me, he said, you're really good at this. You need to keep teaching, and I kept teaching, and I kept practicing. And, you know, again, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I, every day I would start my day with meditation. I would sit for an hour, and I would sit for an hour, and then I would get up, and during that hour, those voices that are in my head, just like everybody else has, these voices come up, and they talk about that cup of coffee you're going to have after meditation, or that girl that you used to go out with, or that guy that did you wrong, and all those voices came up, and I learned how to just sit there and let those voices come up and just label them thought and get in that witness state, that witness state that all of us have where you're doing something and there's a part of you that's behind you that's going, I don't know if that's such a good idea. I learned how to get in touch with that or that thought that says, this is good for you, keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And I learned how to start to get in that witness state and then through teaching yoga i got to see i got to see the light come on in people's eyes you know guys that had never been able to take a deep breath for years suddenly found themselves in a safe environment with somebody that cared about them and that was just going to give him give them what had been given to me that's all i've done i've given to other people what was given to me freely and i got to watch guys suddenly relax and take a deep breath and then come up to me after class and tell me wow i can't believe the way i feel this is amazing i'm going to come back um same thing happens in aa you know you get somebody and you take them through the steps of alcoholics anonymous and they have a spiritual experience and it changes their lives on a fundamental level and they're never the same ever ever after Um, it's not to say that they're not going to drink and use again because a lot of people relapse but they get that taste of release that taste of contentment that they've never had and that was for me those were the transitional moments walking on that track with jimmy the jaywalker and suddenly not caring about being cool anymore um having that guy serendipitously coming up to me shortly thereafter and offering me these lessons um having somebody tell me you're good at this you should do this something that i already loved doing because by that point my practice my hatha yoga practice was strong my body was strong Um, And then I get out of prison, and while I was in prison, I made a lot of really good contacts, and I had a couple really important mentors. I've got a a mentor that's a former Washington County judge, prosecutor, and attorney. Um, He's a very important person in my life. I have, you know, my sponsor in AA. He's obviously very important to me, too. And then I've, as I've gone through what I've gone through after getting out, you know, I had a really hard time finding work. But I found work. I worked for Jiffy Loop for a minute. And then shortly after I got that job, I got an opportunity to go back to school. And now I'm a full-time criminology student at Portland State University. I've got a 3.45 uh, GPA. I have another about another year to go, and I'll finish my uh, bachelor's of science in criminology, criminal justice. And, um, you know, my life is so full. I have a wonderful house that I'm living in with a wonderful woman that I love with all my heart. I have a um, little landscaping business that I get to do. I got to go skiing with all my old buddies. Um, I race bicycles in the cycle cross series here in Portland, in Oregon. And uh, you yeah, got a puppy. I got a puppy. Actually, it's not my. It's not my dog. As I like to tell my uh, my partner, I tell her that that's your dog. But yeah, I have a I have a great puppy that I live with, and another 15 year old dog that that's wonderful. And I live in probably one of the most beautiful spots in the country. Yeah. Um, my life is full. It's rich. 
And I think that the biggest and most important thing is that I've turned from being a taker to, to a giver. And when I give, you know, the universe gives back to me in great measure. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations, man. Thanks. And thank you for sharing this. Yeah. My pleasure. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation. Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.